We're now into Mark 11, and as Cindy said, um, there's a change of focus now, Mark's Gospel. Before, it's all happening up in northern Israel, and Jesus is doing his teaching. He's baptised by John, his ministry. He's establishing his credentials as the Messiah, and in fact, as more than the Messiah, as the disciples said, who, who can calm the wind and the seas. And so now, he, it's the final part of the story, the final section, before he goes to the cross. And so uh, lots is happening and there's a, there's a kind of a crisis building. Jesus is making his way, has made his way from northern Israel, you know, somewhere like Launceston, walked down to the capital city, down to Hobart, it's that kind of thing. And last time, as you remember, Thomas told us, he um, healed the blind Bartimaeus in Jericho and now he's making his way up to Jerusalem. I say up to Jerusalem, have a look at this picture, this is the journey that he would take. It's about 28 k's um, and it's, I looked on Google Maps yesterday. It takes eight hours 20 even today if you want to make that walk. You can see it's very steep. It's almost as high as going to Mount Wellington. So that's the, that's the, the background of our story here. And then Jesus gets to, we have this procession uh, entering Jerusalem. It's some, sometimes called uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem but in fact it's not because it's not his entry at all, it's, it's coming into, it's coming into Jerusalem, advancing on Jerusalem. And I don't know about you, but whenever I read the story of Jesus and the crowds and they're throwing their palm branches and I get the feeling, you know, you've got a crowd either side, Jesus on his donkey in the middle, and I almost see it in isolation, this, this great amazing event that everyone must have been aware of. But when you focus out a little bit, when you, when, you, when you think about the situation there, you recognise that this road wasn't an empty road. This is a major route into Jerusalem and this is Passover time. So the population of Jerusalem was something like, there are different estimates, but we could say probably about 100,000 people. And at Passover time, there was about at least one and a half million, some say two and a half to three million people in Jerusalem. So you, you can imagine this little group that Jesus is part of, that he's probably picked up in Galilee and they've seen his miracles and they kind of reckon, well, he's at least a prophet. It's going to be exciting. Let's go down to Jerusalem. And then on the road, you'd pick up these little straggler pilgrim groups and they'd gather together for safety. And there would have been hundreds of these groups because they're not only coming from northern Israel, they're coming from Lebanon and from Syria and from Babylon and from Asia Minor and from Greece and from Africa. They're all over the place. So there's a lot of things about the story of Jesus that were quite common for the time. We think, oh, that's what happened when Jesus came. But uh, you'll note in Mark chapter 11, it says, blessed is he who comes in the Lord's name. That was a common greeting. That was the way they would greet pilgrims as they came into Jerusalem, the palm branches, etc. There's a quote here from one of the commentators who says, the presence of the crowds the greens, that's the greenery, the, the, the bushes and so on, the antiphonal chanting of the Hallel Psalms, the feeling of exaltation when the city comes to view, make the final stage of the pilgrimage, even if Jesus wasn't present. So these are normal, a lot of these are normal kind of events. And you can see why this works, because Jesus is being quite clear about not telling people that he's the Messiah. The crisis will come at the right time. The Roman authorities will will crucify him at exactly the right time and this wasn't the time. So Jesus flies under the radar because these things are not particularly unusual except for a couple of events. Jesus is sitting on a donkey 
Now, traditionally, when you came to the Passover, you were supposed to walk in to Jerusalem. And in fact, if you read the Gospels, you'll find this is the only occasion uh, that we know of where Jesus actually rode. So remember, Mark is recalling these events uh, many years later, and at the time he may have known nothing of the significance, but he points out to us in the book of Mark these significant events. He came on a donkey. This, and the donkey, you remember, had been ridden by how many people? None. Well, animals uh, that were used for priestly service had that property. They never had a saddle put on or had been ridden by anyone. So there's an indication there, okay, this is something more than just someone riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. The, um, in fact, what Jesus was doing was he was fulfilling Bible prophecy. One prophecy written about 500 years before and one that was written 1,800 years before, before there was a nation of Israel, when the tribe of Judah wasn't a tribe, it was a person. Have a look here, Genesis 49, verse 10. Now this is uh, Jacob, he gets his sons together and he makes this prophecy about Judah. Judah is the tribe of Israel from which David the great king was descended and also the tribe from which Jesus was descended. And this was the prophecy, maybe 1,800 years before. The scepter won't depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. Now you read that, and if you read it in the light of Mark chapter 11, you go, oh, suddenly this common greeting, blessed is he who comes in the Lord's name, takes on significance. Because this scepter, this royal kingship, uh, will come to him who it belongs to, shall come. It's an identification of Jesus. Even the fact that he will tether his donkey to a vine. You know, you read Mark and you think there's a bit of repetition there because Jesus says, I want you to go to this village, I want you to find this colt, you'll find it tied up and I want you to untie the colt and bring it to me. And then a bit later on it says the disciples did that. They went there, they found the colt, they, it was tied up and they untied it. You see the connection that's being made? There's a connection between this prophecy in Genesis, the coming Messiah, the identification, not known to many of them. The other one is Zechariah, a bit more straightforward. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. There's plenty of that going on. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this switch to many people may not seem particularly significant is particularly significant because it shows that everything that we've been reading about Jesus, this is just one of the 360-odd prophecies about Jesus that shows him to be the Messiah, yet not known by many, including his disciples. Did you realise that? Do you believe me? Turn over to John chapter 12, because I know you've got your Bibles right there, or your phone, because John records the same event. John chapter 12, you'll note from verse 12, it talks about the, the uh, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, the palm branches, the singing, the donkey, and in verse 16 it says, At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Isn't that amazing? I find that amazing. and I'm not sure whether Jesus kept it from them and then revealed it at some time after his resurrection. But in any, in any case, this uh, event was 
kind of not only unknown by lots of people around, but unknown even by his disciples. All part of the plan of God because the plan of God was for this to take place in the right time and at the right place. So, let me break it to you. There was no triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Read, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11 and you'll see what happens. Because this is also a strange feature, I think, of this verse. Because you've got this acclamation of Jesus. You've got him throwing palm branches. You've got him throwing their clothes, proclaiming him as king. And then in chapter 11, what does it say in verse 11? No crowd anymore. The crowd's dispersed. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Totally, total anticlimax, isn't it? One of the commentators says, he comes to Jerusalem, he looks like a tourist, he has a look around, sees what's there, and then goes home. You'll understand that it is late, it's been that long journey, perhaps nine hours or something, and so he goes back to Bethany. But Jesus isn't a tourist. Jesus isn't just going to say, oh, this temple, let's, let's scope it out. Because the events of the next day, what we see demonstrated here, were as a result of that visit. Jesus was looking around. Again, this was prophecy. I don't know, do I have this one on the slide? Probably don't. Oh, I do. Malachi 3. So this was um, maybe 500 years before. I will send my messenger, says Yahweh, who will prepare the way before me. The messenger, John the Baptist, that first uh, path thing we saw. Then suddenly the Lord... There's great irony, even sarcasm in this. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant who knew desire will come. Great, the king's coming. The king's coming to the temple. Note the next verse. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. <laughs> yeah, it, he didn't come in exactly the way they expected him to come. He came in judgment. And the whole theme of this chapter and, and further on is this theme of judgment that Jesus comes to judge, to see what's actually going on there in, in Jerusalem. The rabbis, in fact, were quite embarrassed by the prophecy about a donkey. And they didn't know quite what to make of it because they knew that it said that the Messiah would come on the clouds of heaven. And yet in Zechariah it's saying he's coming on a donkey. And they tried to work this out. And, and if you look in the Talmud, their, their oral teaching of the time, they were able to reconcile this. They said, Jesus will come on the clouds of heaven if Israel is worthy. And if it's not worthy, he'll come on a cult in a humble fashion. Well, they were right because Jesus came in judgment and the judgment um, was demonstrated there. The theme of judgment also goes through those little events that you might think, why is this there? You know, it's nice to hear about this fig tree that he goes, sees a fig tree, there's no fruit on it very disappointed, curses the tree, and then makes his way. But that's not, that's not just a little event in Jesus' life. And some people say, this is very strange behaviour for Jesus. I'm not sure it should be there. This doesn't sound very positive, cursing the tree, and then uh, you know, making a whip, that's also not very positive. But this is part of Jesus' demonstration of judgement. He looks at this um, fig tree, doesn't he, after he's been to the temple. And what is significant about that fig tree? It's got lots of leaves. 
It's got lots of leaves. It's showing something. It's indicating something uh, that it doesn't have. Fruit. That's the very thing that Jesus complained about in terms of Israel. They had the looks. This temple was magnificent. And Jesus said, they're, you know, they're, with their lips they praise me, but with their heart is far away from me. They've got the leaves, they've got no fruit. And then later on, uh, that tree is seen to be dead from the, from the roots. Israel was often compared to a fig tree. So this wasn't just Jesus having to pass by the fig tree. This was an object lesson, a bit like those prophetic lessons, uh, you know, with Isaiah when he's, you know, digging a hole in the side of his house or Jeremiah or Ezekiel burying something uh, down by the Euphrates River. He's demonstrating something that they need to know. God is coming in judgment to Israel and he's found them wanting. There's a um, demonstration of this in Luke chapter 6 because this motif doesn't just appear here. But just turn over with me to uh, Luke 13. I wonder what I've done with my glasses. In my hand. There we go. Luke 13 and verse, from verse 6, Jesus said, I'll tell you a parable. A man had a fig tree, planted it in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but didn't find any. He said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, three years, does that seem significant? For three years now, I've been looking for fruit. How long was Jesus' ministry? About three years. I've been looking for fruit. And I haven't found, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use any soil? And the man replied, leave it alone here for one more year and I'll dig around and fertilise it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, cut it down. There's that sense of judgement that's going through. Even back uh, in, oh, have it, no, I haven't got it here. Turn back to um, Micah. Micah's one of those small prophets and if you've given up already, just think, no, I can find it. Hosea, Joel, um, Micah, uh, sorry, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Hosea, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and then Micah. Micah chapter 7. And again, if you're inclined to think this, this interaction with the fig tree was accidental, read this. What misery is mine, says Yahweh. I'm like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat. None of the early figs that I crave. What is he talking about? Not enough fruit in Israel? No, the godly have been swept from the land. Not one upright man remains, etc., etc. It's that theme of judgment again running through the book. And when we read this, when we read about judgment, it's very easy to condemn those people in Israel, isn't it? It's very easy to say, yeah, well, they talk a lot, they talk a big game, but you know, what were they like inside? How were they actually dealing with people? But it's important for us, and especially on an occasion like this, to think about ourselves. What's our fruitage like? Have we got the leaves? Are we going through the motions? Do we look good? Would our neighbours say, yeah, that's a great Christian person. I see him driving out of the driveway every Sunday morning. Have we got the looks, but have we got the fruit? Have we got the fruit? Ask yourself, in relation to this uh, temple cleansing of Jesus, 
the, the tragic thing about this was that this was something that was happening in the house of God. It was very, it was very important that people be able to pray. Where did this happen? This happened in the court of the Gentiles. Uh, have I got a picture up here? Yeah. So you've seen this many times, but let's refresh our memories. This bit here on the outside, the outer temple, is the court of the Gentiles. That's the only place where Gentile people could come and pray. Jews could pray there, but Gentiles could only go in that section. They couldn't go in that court of the women, which is a bit further on, or the quarter of the priests, which is a bit closer to the temple. They could only pray in that outer temple court. And you, you notice when Jesus, Cindy didn't do this for some reason, she just did the action, she didn't do the preaching. But if you turn to Mark chapter 11, Jesus teaches at the same time as he's throwing over these tables. And what does he say? Uh, Mark chapter 11 and verse 17. It says, And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? Mark's the only one that mentions this in the Gospels, but it's a direct quote from Isaiah who also uses that phrase. This is supposed to be a house of prayer for people of all nations, people like you and I, people who are non-Jews. This is the only place they could pray. Now what happens when you bring in stalls and set up stalls for money changing and you've got cattle and you've got sheep and you've got birds and you've got oil and you've got salt? You diminish the space in which people are able to pray. Not only do you diminish the physical space, but as Cindy said, it's like, it's worse than Salamanca Market. It's like an oriental bazaar. And you've got animals making noise and you've got uh, manure everywhere and you've got the sounds of people haggling or complaining that they've been ripped off as they exchange their money and so on. And so even to get the headspace to pray is very, very difficult for people. So no wonder Jesus was outraged. This was supposed to be a place of prayer for all people. And apparently this had only been a, a, a particularly or a relatively recent event. So it, it's reckoned that about the year 30 these stalls made their way to the court of the Gentiles. Before then there were shops already on the Mount of Olives which is probably uh, maybe four k's away. So you could go and get, you could exchange your money, you could get your animals and you could take them to the temple. But the person who brought them into the temple was a guy we might know from the New Testament, a guy called Caiaphas because it was the Jewish ruling body who actually controlled all that, all that uh, money-making stuff on the Mount of Olives, Caiaphas decided he wanted a bit of the action, and so he brought that into the temple. And as you can imagine, over time, um, that just becomes the status quo, doesn't it? You notice this in life, doesn't it? Somebody brings in a new innovation, and people complain about it a lot, and then before you know it, it's just, it's just the way it is. And so suddenly that space is much, much smaller, People are doing their business and nobody thinks any, anything about it, except for Jesus. So I wonder what's the correlation in terms of our self? What's our worship space like? Is our worship space, the, the devotion that we give to God, does it take up a lot of room in our life? Or do we find that over time, little stalls have been set up in various places and so we're squeezed? There's a, a verse in Ephesians chapter 2 which is very dear to us. I think it's maybe on the next slide. It says, For it's by grace you have been saved through faith. 
It's not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. You familiar with that verse? And we say, yeah, works. You know, we, we must get away from a works-based faith. But it goes on to say, we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see, the kind of works that Jesus, uh, that uh, Paul is talking about there are works that are fruitage. They're fruitage of this devotion to God and, this, uh, and being a new creation and being a, uh, yeah, a new person, being resurrected as one of our songs said. I've been resurrected by Jesus Christ. We've got a totally new life and a totally new viewpoint and totally new works to do. And so your neighbours won't be doing some of the works that I've maybe got up here. I've got a list. These are just some things off the top of my head. Reading God's Word. The scriptures tell us that the things that were written in the Old Testament were written for our benefit. Meditating on His Word. Psalm chapter 1 about our leaves being not withering and our roots going down. Taking time to meditate on His Word. Now think of these things as being your space of worship, your allocated space of worship. How many of these things, how much space have you got for these things? Gathering together for worship. Don't neglect the gathering of yourselves together as some have the custom. Do it more as the end draws near. Singing, what we've been doing this morning, praying, using our gifts. Paul says to the Romans, if you've got a gift, the idea is because you're a new person, you, you need to use that gift. You need to use it to serve others. So if it's a gift of serving, do that serving. If you've got a gift of teaching, do that teaching. If you've got a gift of hospitality, be hospitable. Bearing one another's burdens. That means that the desire is in the worship space that we inhabit that there should be time to really get to know people in our community here. Because it's only when you get to know people that they will share their burdens. You can't bear them unless they share them. Spreading the gospel. Talking about the great good news of Jesus Christ. Looking after widows and orphans. The last one I thought was very important because I think of all the people sitting over there, young mothers, and think... They haven't got time for much at all. But one of these things of the worship space, uh, Paul says, is women being busy at home and looking after their children and looking after their families, discipling their children, all of those things. That's a vitally important thing. That's a worship space that we have. And all of us should be looking to, to have at least that space. And maybe that was your experience when you first became a Christian. When you first became a Christian, didn't your eyes open? Didn't you see things that you'd never seen before? Didn't you walk with a lightness of step? And didn't you reconsider things in your life? When I first became a Christian, first gave my life to God, the thing I wanted to do was expand my space. It was to look at what, what I actually had to do and think, how can I serve God in a fuller way? So remember, Amory and I have been married just a few years and, we, and I was working in the public service five days a week. I think that's a lot of time to spend on work and not, you know, and try and fit God around the edges. Can I change my life? And that's how I started my business, to work three days a week, maybe longer days, but spend three days a week and then I'd have two extra days in which to serve God. That's the kind of spirit that comes when we're a new creation. I remember going to the, uh, Emery and I went to the bank to get our uh, first mortgage, we went to the agricultural bank in Tasmania and they said, this is the smallest mortgage we have ever had to, ever had to approve. 
Well, it wasn't small because we'd saved up lots of money. It was small because we wanted to have a, a, a small mortgage that didn't require a lot of work, that we didn't have to earn lots of money to pay a mortgage on something. So we really made sure that we had very little in the way of commitments. That's because we wanted to expand our service to God. We wanted to serve him more. So I think for all of us, we need to constantly say, because all of us have got an inner Caiaphas. We've got an inner Caiaphas who'll say, yeah, I know you've got that set out for worship, but there's so many other things that you could do. How about just set up this little stall, this little bit of extra whatever it is, and it could be a hobby or it could be education or it could be work or it could be family stuff, whatever it is. Let's set up just that little stall and that won't take up much space. And then, and then another one comes along. And before you, you turn around, you've got a very restricted space in which to please God. And let me tell you, in terms of age, it's great to be old, to be able to not know where your glasses are and forget your grandchildren's names. There are some benefits of coming with being old. But one of, the, one of the dangers of being an old guy like me is that you can rely on your past performance and on how it used to be. And if you've ever talked to people like this, they'll tell you about how great it was in the 1960s when they were doing this or that, or the 1970s or the 1980s, because at that time they had an expansive worship space and they reveled in that and that was probably the happiest time of their life because Jesus offers abundant life to us and you find as the spirit is flowing through you you're not doing these things because they've been laid out for you you're doing it because you want to serve God and you're, you're excited about it and you want to do more well the danger is we live on past glories and we haven't noticed or maybe we have noticed that Caiaphas has set up all these little tables in our place and we have to rely on what happened 50 years ago to get any sort of uh, excitement the danger for young people, the danger for people, well, no offence to you guys, but they're over this side, the young people. The danger for young people is that you judge yourself by the stalls that other people have set up in their life. So you look at their life and you say, that's a normal Christian life or a normal secular life. It looks like this. Or a normal Christian life. It looks like this. It doesn't have to look like that. And you can decide to change it any time you like. And you might decide, as some people have. Do I really need both of us to work? Maybe both of us don't need to work. Maybe one of us could work and that would give us a lot more time for ministry of one sort or another. Or maybe we don't have to do this extra thing that we thought is really important. It's about expanding our worship space, not diminishing it and not, not going by what other people do. Worship is a way of life. We want to we, we don't want to be people that just look good from the outside. We want to be people that are, are, are giving fruit. And it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Because what you'll find is, although this is a list, the life of God isn't a list, is it? The life of Christian life isn't a list. It's a response to the Spirit working on us. And what you, what you will find over time, what there's evidence of in this church, is that as you begin to take time out for meditation and for prayer and for reading God's Word, there's this fire within you and you want to talk to people about what you've learned and you're looking for opportunities to do that and you're maybe looking then to simplify your life and do other things but you're walking in the spirit that's really what it is rather than walking in the flesh you're walking in the spirit the adoration from God actually has a physical effect on the way and the decisions that you make in your life the, the um, way of serving God isn't it isn't, 
It isn't just uh, according to a pattern. It is something that has to come from the Spirit's work. Tell you something else as an old guy that I can tell you is that you'll always find time for what's important. Great thing about being old is you look at your past life or you look at other people around you and go, yeah, that's true. If somebody absolutely likes fishing, it doesn't matter what else is going on in their life, you'll find they find an hour or two to do that. Isn't that true? Or if you really love God, you'll find time to be able to do it. If you really love to speak to people about God, you'll find a way to do it. Or if you really love, well, anything, if you love work or you like stamp collecting, you'll find time to do it. So that's a challenge to us. The challenge to us is what does our life look like? What does our worship space look like in our life? There's a John Piper quote I'm very fond of. Um, it's probably a bit dated because it only references Twitter and Facebook, but he said, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. It's true, isn't it? Our priorities will dictate how we spend our time and how we live our life. Um, I don't want to leave you thinking that um, this is just a, a, a list of do's and don'ts. This is about refocusing and getting back to what it is to be, to have adoration for God, to be walking in the Spirit. It's about a check on ourselves. And Caiaphas needed to do this at the beginning. Right at the beginning when he was dealing with the priest, they need to say, no, this is sacred space. You can put your stalls anywhere you like outside the temple, but they're not coming in here. That's, what we need. That's the attitude we need to have. Let me leave you with this quote from William Temple. Uh, he's always good for a good quote. And he said this about worship. Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose. And all of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable and therefore the chief remedy for that self-centeredness which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. Let me pray. Father, we confess, uh, I don't know that there's one person here that could say that their worship space is everything they would want to be and encompasses everything it should be. So, Father, we repent of that. We do adore you. We do, do know that you are our Father, that this road to the cross was not one that was done by accident but by design, that Jesus walked this road very carefully in order to bring salvation to each one here and in doing so to create new people, a new community, something very different from the secular world outside it that's not governed by its own tastes, or its own dictates or its own will, but governed simply by your will. The care and the nurture that would be extended to each member of the community, the desire with which we would um, give voice to the good news which is within us, this great message that we can share, and the love that would be shown and the tenderness that would be shown to our own families as we disciple them and grow them in faith and knowledge of you. So Father, I ask your blessing on our intentions. And again, I would say for every person in this place, our intention is that this week we would concentrate clearly on what your will is, that we would hear your voice, that we would cast a new eye on our worship space and on the, the tables that have been set up in it. And I pray that all of us would dismantle some of those tables and enjoy all the abundance 
uh, all the truth, all the spirit that you offer in Jesus Christ. Amen.